Lord Jesus, thank you for the gift of your spirit. I pray that you would come now, fill us afresh. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit wants to say to the church. In Jesus' name, Amen. I wonder what it was like on the day of Pentecost. I don't know if it was really quite like that, but I can't reproduce what happened at Pentecost. We probably all have our own idea of what it was like when the Holy Spirit came on those first disciples. But actually, it's a bit dark, this picture, isn't it? But this was um, Titian, the 16th century painter, Titian's impression of the Holy Spirit coming on those first disciples. And you can see that they're all kind of falling over, staggering over under the power of God. And uh, so it wasn't just a little waft of wind that came through the room. The extraordinary noise and the commotion that it caused um, as the untamed spirit came on those disciples could be heard down the road because we read in the scriptures that a crowd gathered around the place where the spirit felt. This was no quiet manifestation of God's presence. There was no mistaking the fact that God was in the house. And remember that God is in the house this morning. So what actually happened? Well, first we're told in verse 1 that it was the day of Pentecost. In other words, it was already a major Jewish holiday. Um, Hundreds of thousands of people descended on Jerusalem from all over the world to gather to celebrate the Feast of Weeks, it was called. Um, And it was the start of the wheat harvest. So it was a bit like a harvest festival, I suppose. But the second thing we're told in verse 1 is that Jesus' disciples were all together in one place. That's who the they refers to. Because Luke, the writer, has just been talking about them in the previous paragraph. And I think this is a really significant part of what this passage tells us. Why? Well, if you look back across the page to chapter 1, Jesus' disciples, we're told, were all together in one place. Jesus tells them to stay in Jerusalem and wait, verses 4 and 5. He tells them to go to Jerusalem and wait. And then in uh, verses 12 and then 14, they all join together constantly in prayer. And here they are, 10 days later, still together, still praying. And the Spirit falls. And then three things happen. We're told that a sound like a violent wind came from heaven. So we're back to, back to um, chapter 2. Uh, And verse 2, a sound like a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house. Please note, actually there wasn't wind itself. The disciples didn't mistake a bit of a gust of wind for a move of God. We're told that there came a sound like that of a violent wind and it came from heaven. So it was a supernatural um, event. But what did it signify? Well, 
According to John Stott and many other biblical scholars, they point out that right through the Bible, the word for wind, which is ruach in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, and it's, um, it's pneuma in the Greek, in the New Testament, is used to denote the impartation of God's power by his Holy Spirit. Stott points out that the Spirit breathed life into Adam, that he filled Samson with power, that Jesus was filled with the Spirit at his baptism. So wind right through the Bible is a sign of the presence and the power of God's Spirit. And the second thing that occurs is this, is that they saw what appeared to be tongues of fire which came to rest on each of them. Again, this is a supernatural phenomenon. It wasn't actual fire. We're told it was what seemed to be like tongues of fire. But what did this fire mean? Well, according to Simon Punsonby in his book, God Inside Out, which is a wonderful um, book on, on the spirit, fire is probably the primary metaphor used in the Bible to denote the presence of God. And you'll remember perhaps that when God speaks to Moses, it's out of a burning bush. That God appears as the consuming fire on Mount Sinai. That Elijah calls down the fire of God on, at Mount Carmel in 1 Kings. And John the Baptist said that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So fire represents the blazing purity of God. Fire was used to purify metals in the furnace, and so fire is a symbol of the purifying power of God's spirit. And Punsonby also suggests that fire is a symbol of the passion which the spirit imparts to believers, giving the disciples the boldness to go out and spread the gospel. Sometimes we talk about people when they, don't we, we say that their faith is really on fire, because they're so excited about it. Do you know, the day that Kirsty first came to faith, she doesn't know I'm going to say this actually, but the, the day that Kirsty first came to faith, she was absolutely set on fire. She was so passionate for, in her love for Jesus. People in our village were crossing the road to avoid her. She so wanted to tell everybody about the love of God in Jesus, which she had discovered for herself. And then the third thing, that happens in verse 4 is that the disciples now filled with the power of the spirit all start talking in other tongues speaking in other languages now this doesn't mean that the disciples suddenly decided to brush up on their GCSE French or their Spanish or or whatever it was Uh, not at all it actually is another supernatural manifestation of God's spirit. The word used here by Luke for these languages is glossolalia. It's translated as tongue. So what does he mean by this? Well, for a start, it's a miracle of speech. It's the supernatural ability to speak in a recognizable language that hasn't been learned. We're told that the crowd was made up of God-fearing Jews from all over, every nation under heaven, it says. And they would have been Jews of the dispersion who had gone out to live in countries as diverse as North Africa, Italy, Turkey, right up to the Caspian Sea, right across the Middle East. And the astonishing implication for these Jews, 
who believed that Israel was God's chosen people and no one else, is that the good news of God's love was being communicated for all people, for all nations of every language, not just Israel, as they had always thought. And finally, on this point, the disciples were not drunk, as some jokers suggested in verse 13. Because for a start, it was far too early in the morning, as Peter points out in verse 15. And anyway, they were ably speaking in languages which the listeners clearly understood. The Holy Spirit was empowering them to tell everybody about the good news of God's love. And you know, about a week after Kirsty came to faith, she was walking the dogs in the woods. We've got a couple of dogs. and She was walking the, the dogs in the woods. And she bumped into a friend she hadn't seen for quite a long time, who wasn't a churchgoer. And this friend took one look at her, at her radiant face, and said, what nurse happened to you? And so Kirsty poured out her story about how she'd come to faith. And this woman was pretty much converted on the spot. Today, she's still a strong Christian, and Kirsty meets up with her and prays with her regularly. When the Holy Spirit is burning brightly in us, we are dangerous in a good way. So the three manifestations we've looked at, the sound of a violent wind, the appearance of what looks like fire, and the supernatural ability to speak in other tongues, all point to the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. And now, with, with all this going on, I think the best question comes in verse 12, when Luke tells us that, amazed and perplexed, the crowd asks one another, what does this mean? And in the next section of the chapter, from verse 14 onwards, the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples and ardent supporters, stands up in the front of this huge crowd, which has now gathered, and he answers that question. And what he tells them is this. In verses 17 to 21, he quotes almost word for word a prophecy which the prophet Joel made several hundred years earlier and which all educated Jews would have known about from the scriptures, which said that one day, one day, God would pour out his spirit on all people. In other words, that God would no longer be the God of just the Jewish nation, but of all people on earth. And he says this prophecy is being fulfilled today, that day of Pentecost. And then in verses 22 to 36, he explains the link between the outpouring of God's Spirit and the person of Jesus Christ. And in effect, he says, look, this man Jesus, the one walking around doing all the miracles, yes, the one you all clamoured for him to be crucified, well, God raised him from the dead which we, his disciples, witnessed, and now he's gone back to be with his heavenly Father, and it's his Holy Spirit who has been poured out today. It's Jesus that you need to put your trust in. It turns out, says Peter, that the prophecy which ends with the words, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, refers, after all, to the Lord Jesus Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah and saviour of God's people. And so that's the explanation of Pentecost. 
But let's ask one last question, if you like. What does it mean for us today? What are the implications for our lives in Reading in 2018 in St. Matthew's? And the message of this book, this love letter from God, the Bible, is that every single one of us is equally responsible for sending Jesus to the cross through what we've done wrong. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. On the day of Pentecost, Peter told them that they had been responsible for putting Jesus on the cross, but Jesus died for all of us, for every single person. We are all responsible for putting Jesus on the cross, but by conquering death and rising to new life and sending his spirit, Jesus offers us forgiveness and new life starting now by the healing of our relationship with God if we put our trust in him, if we ask him to be Lord of our lives. And on that day of Pentecost, 3,000 people, we're told. I've jumped right forward to, um, to verse 41 of, the, of this chapter 2. On that day, 3,000 people put their trust in Jesus and got baptised. I wonder how many of us here this morning might believe in Jesus, but maybe we haven't actually put our trust in him. Do you remember the story about the rich young man who comes to Jesus? He's a, he's a wealthy young man who comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, he believed in Jesus. He, he knew that Jesus held the keys to the kingdom or he wouldn't have asked him that question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But Jesus spots where his trust really lies and he says in effect, look, you're a great guy. You know all the rules, but you're missing one thing. Go sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor. And this chap, I can just imagine his face falling and he, he turns away and sadly walks away. He believes who Jesus is, but he cannot take the step of faith to put his trust in him. That's why giving giving money away is so powerful. It breaks the hold that it has on our lives. It stops it getting in the way of our relationship with God. And we need to get rid of the stuff that's coming between us and God, whatever it is. It might be lack of forgiveness. It might be thinking that we're not good enough. It might be thinking that God couldn't love me because I know how bad I feel inside. It might be dependence on money or materials or food or drugs or drink or it might be selfishness, it might be envy, it might be pride. All the ki- these kinds of things can get in the way and prevent us having a close communion with God and we need to get rid of the rubbish And when we do that, if we do that, if we can take that step, then our lives are transformed. And certainly something seems to have happened to Peter on the day of Pentecost. Peter, the fisherman from Galilee who who often got things wrong, he denied Jesus three times in one day. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and becomes this great orator. And 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus because of what Peter says. And God sent his spirit 
for us so that we too could have the passion and the courage to reach out to the worlds that we touch with the good news of Jesus. Be it the office, the workplace, the family, the school, neighbours, the local community, wherever it is. Walking dogs in the woods. And be witnesses to how Jesus brings hope and healing and new purpose and new joy to people's lives. And you know, it's been such a privilege over the last seven years since we've been here to see people clearly touched and changed by the Spirit of God in different ways. One person said how God has softened their heart and mended broken family relationships. Another said how Jesus has healed their broken heart. Another uh, man says that he feels like a new man. And some of the children just wonderfully express their love for Jesus and how they pray to him for their needs. We've just had Sasha and Brandon staying with us, 10-year-old and 7-year-old, for the last 10 days. And, and they pray before every meal. They pray every evening. And it's not because we tell them to. If we forget to, they say, we haven't prayed. It's wonderful. And for all those who are going to affirm their baptismal vows, get baptised and confirm next Sunday, that's a sign of God's Spirit at work in the hearts of people here, calling them to take the step of faith. People who've said, you know what, I want to do life with Jesus. I want to trust my life to Jesus. That's the spirit at work in people's hearts. Isn't it great? So we could sum up the entire meaning of Pentecost. If we turn back to that prophecy of Joel, it's, in, it's verse 17 on chapter 2. We could sum up the entire meaning of Pentecost with the first two lines of that prophecy and the last verse. The first two lines of that prophecy and the last verse. I will pour out my spirit on all people. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That was the Pentecost event. God poured out his spirit on all people. And everyone who called on the name of the Lord was saved And are still saved today. As a friend of mine, Malcolm Duncan, said, we don't need another Pentecost. We've been given everything that we need to be fully empowered disciples of Christ, moving in the power of his spirit. Our weakness, for some of us, is that we haven't yet made the transition from believers to to fully committed disciples. But we can, by following the example of the disciples of Jesus, who obediently stayed together and prayed together the oldest prayer in the church, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. So why don't we just be silent for a moment and ask God to come and speak to each one of us by his Holy Spirit about how we might respond to the gift of Pentecost. Will we carry on ignoring him? Will we carry on resisting him? Or will we take a risk and call on the name of the Lord and pray, come Holy Spirit?
In fact, can I ask you to stand as the music team come and just prepare to lead us in worship again? If we could stand together. Let's stand and pray for God to fill us afresh with his spirit. You might want to hold out your hands in an act of receiving. Lord, we're not asking for another Pentecost because you have already given us your Holy Spirit. But as we stand here, we ask you, Lord, release your Spirit in us. Stir up a love of Jesus so powerfully in us that we become irresistible disciples who communicate your love to the world. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we want to spread your fragrance everywhere we go. Flood our souls with your spirit and life. Penetrate and possess us from top to bottom, right through, that our lives may only be a radiance of yours. Shine through us and be so in us that every person we come into contact with may feel your presence in our souls. May our love for you be so evident in our hearts that others will reach out for your love and your mercy and your grace. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here.